0: Welcome to VSI Variation Selection Inheritance, Podcast Production of the National Science Foundation's Beacon Center for the Study of Evolution in Action. I'm Randall Hayes. If you watch Nova Science now, you've heard of the Howard Hughes Medical Institute. They fund a lot of science education stuff in addition to their medical research portfolio. Their website has lots of resources for teaching biology. I'll link to that from the web page. They also do a podcast, which I'll admit I've never listened to. That probably makes me a bad person. Every year, HHMI puts on a series of lectures where they push new developments in a field onto an audience of mostly high school students. Last year, it was viruses. This year, those lectures are on human evolution, and particularly on the ways that evidence from anatomy, genetics, and archaeology all reinforce one another. Uh, They're pretty good lectures. I won't repeat what they said. If you missed the streaming webcast yesterday and today, you can watch a cleaned-up archive online starting October 11th. What I want to do is expand and comment on those lectures, fill in a little bit. They stop for questions a couple times, but they're on a schedule, and these are lectures. They're not really interactive in the same way that the ones for the National Association of Biology Teachers meeting are supposed to be next week. So what's this sudden interest in high school teachers? Well, as it turns out, I'm doing a master's level class for high school biology teachers this fall. That class happens to be online, and it seemed like a natural fit to have my students participate in those sessions. So, quick overview. There are three people giving four lectures that relate back and forth to one another. Bones, Stones, and Genes is the name of the series. Tim White does an introduction to the scientific method that I won't spend any time on. Sarah Tishoff does the gene stuff, and John Shea talks about archaeology. And then Tim White comes back for a Capper lecture on fossils. Now, my personal interest is in teaching, so I'm going to hop back and forth between the lecturer, and what the students in the audience are saying and doing, and what I personally think. I'll try to be clear, but I'm kind of experimenting here, so hold on. So, uh, Dr. Tishoff lays out how you use DNA from modern people to hypothesize a common ancestor. She has this really nice color-coded slide showing how the mitochondrial Eve the woman from who we all got our mitochondrial DNA, was not the only woman alive, like the biblical Eve. It's just that all the other lines died out or, and this is important, went one generation with no daughters. In other words, this particular analysis requires an unbroken mother-daughter-grandmother-yah-yah-yah line all the way back. Sarah Tishoff didn't mention that bit, And it took Wikipedia to set that light bulb off for me. If you go far enough, eliminating broken lines every single generation, sooner or later, you will inevitably get down to one woman. Go a few more generations, and that line also would eventually be broken by a single son. It doesn't mean there was no one else around, just that you can't see them because sons don't pass their mitochondrial DNA along through the sperm. I wish I knew who coined the phrase mitochondrial Eve. It ranks right up there with genetic dominance as being incredibly memorable but also really misleading. This example points out a pretty serious issue with the way we humans understand the world. Our brains work by association. The way we grasp new facts is by relating them to old facts. We never just delete the old facts like a computer updating its hard drive would. So when you hear the phrase, single female ancestor, and you were raised religious, boom, the association is almost unavoidable. It also struck me as the camera was panning around the audience, showing the ethnic diversity of the crowd, which was considerable. I mean, this is California. As it was doing that, it struck me how obviously wrong it seems to us humans... When scientists say we are genetically less diverse than any other primate species. To me, we look really diverse, and chimps all look alike. And a student asked about that, and chimps all look the same. Doesn't that mean we're more diverse? And, no. What it really means is that we're just incredibly sensitive to tiny differences in the shapes and colors and textures of human faces. It's the same deal as birds. Female birds are experts at judging the songs of males who all sound the same to us. It is inborn and effortless to anyone who's not brain damaged. Like that guy in the Oliver Sacks book, The Man Who Mistook His Wife for a Hat. High schoolers looking at chimps is just like high schoolers looking at stone tools or high schoolers looking at fossils for the first time. We're experts at one another, and we assume that because it's easy, when in reality, we're just really good at it. A similar kind of assumption came up when Sarah Tishoff was talking about most of the world being lactose intolerant. One of the students said something to the effect of, but I don't know anyone who's lactose intolerant which is not really surprising considering how much they rag on Leonard about it on the Big Bang Theory. Very few people are proud of the fact that milk makes them fart ex- explosively, so they don't talk about it. I was quite surprised when I started working at an HBCU, the number of African Americans who are lactose intolerant. But the point is the same as our earlier example with chimp faces. We tend to assume that our mental models are accurate until they fail in a convincing way. When that model is consciously constructed, it's relatively easy to fix. When it is unconsciously built into the very structure of your brain, like the face recognition module, it's much more difficult. John Shea alluded to a similar problem when he talked about the narrative approach to archaeology versus the comparative approach to archaeology. Our brains look for patterns in a really data-rich world. Those patterns take the form of stories about cause and effect. And that's fine when you have a lot of data, when the gaps are small. The problem is that those pattern-seeking algorithms don't change how they work when they're confronted with really big gaps. Our notions of cause and effect tend to fail when they're confronted with what Henry Gee called deep time. This was really brought home to me in one of Tim White's slides, where he showed just how little of the human tree is currently covered by fossil evidence. Actually, Tim White's whole lecture was in one sense a blazing masterpiece. He moved seemingly effortlessly back and forth from the big picture to the narrative details. He did this with the geology of his field sites, going from plate tectonics down to a land rover buried by a flash flood. He covered the politics of working with local governments and tribes. He covered the process of finding, reconstructing, Finally, 15 years later, publishing a single skeleton and put that single paper in the context of all the papers from that site and from the whole field of paleoanthropology. He even talked about the need for cooperation between integrators and specialists, which I was ranting about only last week on this very podcast. Would have made a great book. As a public performance, however judged by watching the faces and body languages of the students in the audience, he lost them. Not with his content, which was, as I said before, clear and masterfully organized. One of the best talks I've ever seen in that regard. Nothing to add to it. But where John Shea, in his Hawaiian shirt, smiled and joked and buried Lego people in bean sediments and told his audience that they could make anything from the fossil record with a little bit of practice. Tim White told them more than once that they hadn't done it right the day before. On my one visit to the Popular Culture Association convention, I learned that stand-up comics, who make their living getting people they don't know to like them, are trained specifically to never take a shot at another group unless they've first taken a shot at themselves to diffuse the tension, to establish that this is not a threat, not a chimp, clashing his sharpened canines together to display his dominance. John Stewart is actually a really good example of this kind of behavior. He does it so often that when he does display some righteous anger, it's really shocking. But, back to the double message of Tim White's talk. It was kind of a dominance display in a sense. He spoke really fast. He used one big word after another, almost reflexively, And as he got into his section on testing the creationist hypothesis, he started getting more intense. His blue eyes widened. For a while there, he was almost preaching. And you could see some of the kids sitting back, crossing their arms, where before they'd been taking notes. Part of that may be just that he was going so fast that they couldn't keep up. But their expressions said more than that to me. Their expressions said, this guy is kind of a dick. You're right. Maybe I am reading too much into a few seconds of crowd footage. But nobody else got the question. Why should I change my beliefs for a theory? That was from a girl who hadn't said anything during any of the other talks. Maybe she'd been saving it up, and it was just her last chance. But to me, that pushback indicates an emotional reaction, not a logical question over a piece of evidence. His response also had an edge of almost anger to it. Maybe I'm too sensitive. Maybe some heat is required to wake people up. These are questions I'm actively researching with my own classes. If I find any answers, I'll let you know, and I hope it won't take 15 years. VSI is produced by me, Randall Hayes, at North Carolina Agricultural and Technical State University, with editing help from journalism major Lauren Branch and funding from the National Science Foundation. Thanks for listening.